My friends, I am so blessed and so honored to do the work that I do every day, whether as a speaker or as an author or as a podcast host. I get to empower you to live, to work, and to lead inspired. That's my job, and I feel incredibly blessed to do it. Over the past 12 years, I've grown from a single speech in front of three incredibly bored third grade Girl Scouts to now influencing several million individuals around the world. Through that growth, I've been able to invite others to do this amazing, incredible mission-centered work with me. I have a team of rock stars. Seriously, they are self-starting, they're deeply driven, they're heart-led, passionate, entrepreneurial rock stars. And as a team, we've gotten really clear that yes, we inspire more than 250,000 people online each week. And yes, we inspire more than 50,000 people at live speaking events each year. And yes, we've inspired a couple hundred thousand people through my number one national best-selling book, On Fire, with another book, one that I'm even more excited about, in the works for 2020. But we want to grow the Live Inspired movement exponentially. And we want to help wake people up from accidental living so that they can truly live their lives on fire. To do this, we recognize the need to better leverage social media, to better utilize our email and new technology. And so, my friends, drum roll, please. Come on. Here we go. We are hiring. We are hiring. We are looking for a new colleague to join us in the Live Inspired movement. Our new colleague will be our digital marketing strategist, specifically using social media, email, and new technology to bring everyone else in the marketplace a better, more inspired experience with me, with our community, so that we can invite more friends to truly live inspired. So what do you think? Does this sound like it might be a great fit for you? Do you want to help us change the world one life at a time by using the best of your talents, your creativity, and your experiences to help inspire others? If you want to learn more or you know someone who might, get more information on my website at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash careers. I'm going to read that one off one more time because I really want you and those that you know who have a mission, heart, and the ability and the desire to change the world to check this one out. John O'Leary inspires.com forward slash careers. Can't wait to hear from you. So my friends, let's go ahead and jump into today's Live Inspired podcast. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Today's guest is a trailblazer with a gifted combination of business acumen, relationship brilliance, and unwavering optimism. Molly Fletcher was formerly a top sports agent. Today, she shares a peek behind the curtain to this life where she negotiated over half a billion dollars in contracts. She represented hundreds of professional sports' biggest stars. And yet today, Molly is a successful entrepreneur. She's a speaker. She's an author. She's leaning into her passion of giving people the courage and the tools to connect, to inspire, and to lead 
fearlessly in work and in life. My friends, you are going to love hearing her energy that shines brightly in everything that she does and in every word she speaks. It is my pleasure to welcome my newest friend to the Live Inspired podcast. Molly, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Oh, John O'Leary, it is such a pleasure. You are (laughs) such a kind man, and I admire you so much. So thanks for having me on. Well, the very first time I met you, and I got to hear you speak, and then I got to do a little bit of research through TED Talks and your own books, and then your podcast, I knew this is someone that I wanted to have on my show, someone whose story I wanted to share with our audience. For those who are hearing the name Molly Fletcher for the very first time, give them a a sense of what your work looks like today. So what's keeping you busy right now? Well, you know, John, like you, I'm running around the country speaking to incredible people, and I speak 60, 70 times a year uh, to to sales teams, to all women's teams, to leaders, and more, and and that is certainly filling me up. Um, I'm a wife and a mother of three teenage daughters. That certainly is incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. And then we have negotiation workshops that we deliver with our coaches all over the world, training folks in one day, uh, often in their offices, on how how to ask for what they want and improve the quality of the deals, and most importantly, the relationships. So it's fun. It's been a wild, rewarding trip to where you are today, and there's a lot from your past that you are able to apply into your present and into those that you are surfing through your work. And so that's the story, Molly, on this conversation I want to share with our listeners. So we are going to back the train out of Atlanta, Georgia, where it's currently parked. We're going to take 75 up north again, back to Lansing, Michigan. Talk about growing up. Wow. Well, like you, John, I have an incredible family and I'm so grateful for for that. My mom and dad um, are still really, really incredible people who I'm so close to and talk to every day, sometimes twice a day. I'm 47 years old and I talk to my parents a few times a day. I don't know if that's odd or not. I'm not really worried about it. I love it. I love it. And then I have twin brothers who are five years older than me and are both uh, airline pilots. So growing up in East Lansing, I was in a house with brothers who treated me a whole lot more like a little brother than a little sister Mm -hmm. and parents who taught me that anything was possible and to go for it and and like you and and, and like your story to lean in and to embrace life and to believe that anything is possible. And so I feel very grateful that I grew up in a wonderfully loving home with two incredible parents and um, twin brothers who Again, I also speak to almost daily still. We are remarkably connected. So I'm grateful for that foundation. I think that foundation played a big role in the life that that I lead now. You're incredibly gifted athletically as a child. And I would imagine as an adult still today, you still have it within you. Was that something that was encouraged by your parents to pursue or having two older brothers who were twins who treated you as the youngest of the brothers? Was it just kind of like a natural thing that you uh, you were attracted to? Well, you know, my mom is is very into the arts, and uh, so she and you told have told me this story before. But you know, she would have me try to take piano lessons, and it got to where she'd have to put the timer on the piano to just get me to sit still for mm-hmm. twenty minutes and try to lean into this piano thing. And it was just hard for me. I wasn't ADD or ADHD, but I bet I'm pretty darn close. And so I just wanted to climb trees and be outside and you know, play sports with my brothers and, and, and anyone really that would. And so I was very much a tomboy who loved to, to compete. And I started to lean into tennis, particularly my freshman year in high school. And 
it became something that I loved. I mean, anywhere I was in, in Michigan or traveling as a family, if I was on a tennis court, I was at home. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my parents did not push me at all. They, they certainly provided opportunities for me um, as much as they could afford to, but they just encouraged me rather than pushed me. And, and for that, I too am grateful because sports and, and the youth uh, world that we live in today has changed a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I would split sets with somebody maybe that I wasn't supposed to split sets for. And I distinctly remember this day splitting sets with a girl who, who, you know, played professionally. And I probably wasn't supposed to split sets for, I was playing really well that day. And, and at the break, we had about a 10 minute break in between sets. And I go outside my mom, I said, mom, you know, do you think I should play her backhand more? I mean, it mm-hmm. feels weaker to me. Should I be coming into the net? And, and she just sort of looked at me and goes, honey, I just think you're doing great. I mean, you're doing great. And do you need a banana or is your water jug full? And that was who she was. And, and, and I think in some regards, that is what has caused me to um, probably parent and encourage sports in the lives of my three daughters, our three daughters, the way that I do. And, and it has caused me to probably to still love the game of tennis as much as I did when I was a freshman in high school. That's awesome. So you love it throughout high school. You end up choosing Michigan State University. Why did you choose to stay uh, in town, stay relatively local? Well, you know, I, I grew up right there. And I'm, as I said, I'm really close to my mom and dad. And I was so close to them that, that literally I, I didn't think that I could leave home. I mean, I really wanted to be as close to them as I possibly could. And... I thought that the opportunity to play Big Ten tennis was pretty special, but I was one of those kids that was kind of on the bubble. I mean, I was not a shoe-in to play Big Ten tennis, and the coach at Michigan State knew me, um, and I had played, uh, of course, growing up in that community, and she gave me a shot as sort of a preferred walk-on, and and so I, I had a little bit of an extra sort of leg up at Michigan State, and fortunately, I earned a spot on the team and competed all four years, and and so it was, it just seemed like the obvious choice for, for a myriad of reasons. My mom had gone there. I was able to stay pretty close to home. And so it was a, you know, it was a, it was a pretty obvious choice for me and a good one, I think, looking back. I read that by senior year, this walk-on becomes captain of the team. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I got in there my freshman year and there was a couple injuries. And so I was playing immediately one doubles and fifth singles and and it was so cool. I mean, I didn't know if I was going to be carrying everybody's water jugs or have a chance to play. And, and there I was competing. And, you know, I think what I'm grateful for is when I got to college, I wanted to keep getting better. Mm-hmm. And I, I really still love the game. And I wanted to continue to stay uh, in it and continue to improve. And I think, um, you know, sometimes kids get to college today and they think, OK, mom and dad, I got you that scholarship. Now leave me alone. And they sort of throw the towel in, and I've seen this a little bit. And I, I just encourage kids and parents to know that it's also important to finish that journey and, and lean into what you have at the college level and embrace it. And I'm not suggesting that people don't, but it's such a it's such a gift to be a student athlete. I mean, it is such a gift. And it changed my life in magical ways, having the opportunity to compete at that level. I know it changed the way I was able to connect with the athletes that I represented and, and coaches, no question. Well, that's where I want to take it now. So you graduate and uh, you head down south to Atlanta. A couple thousand bucks in pocket, but you head down south. Why, why'd you go to Atlanta? Well, the Super Bowl was coming to Atlanta, John, and, and the Olympics was coming. There was a couple pro teams, a couple, of course, colleges in Atlanta. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to try to move down there and see if I can find a job in sports. And so I taught tennis all summer and saved 
like you said, about 2000 bucks and lived on the sort of couch of my high school friend's apartment that was down in Atlanta at the time and said, look, you can stay with me until you sort of figure this out. Mm-hmm. But I moved with the intent of, let me try to, let me try to get to a place where sports is prevalent, where the opportunity to pursue it as a business could be very real for me. And it felt like there was a lot of sort of eggs in the basket in Atlanta and, and it certainly was the case. And, and Atlanta has been good to me and I'm certainly forever grateful to Atlanta. That's for sure. So I've heard you share the story live. Now I need to hear it live among uh, and along with a, a couple thousand friends tuning in right now with us. Talk about your first job in Atlanta. So my first job in Atlanta, I you mean my teaching tennis job? I want to hear about or... the tennis and the pizza yeah, yeah. and the rackets okay. and everything else that goes into <laughs> you really beginning this journey forward. I mean, it's it it was all required for you to eventually take the next big step that you're about to take. Right. Well, like all of us in life, all these moments build on each other. And, and when I got down to Atlanta, my coach had given me the names of three people in Atlanta who taught tennis. And she said to me, I know you don't want to be a tennis pro, but call these people up and maybe they'll help you. Maybe they'll give you some advice. And I've always believed this, right? That in life, sometimes when we ask for advice, we get the business. And sometimes when we ask for business, we get the advice. In business, that's certainly the case. I think in in life, it's true too. Sometimes in life, when you ask for a job, you get advice. (laughs) And sometimes when you ask for advice, you get a job. And so I picked up the names of these three people. And when I got to Atlanta and I called the first gentleman on my list, and he was a very nice guy. And I said, gosh, you know, I'm down here in Atlanta and I was sort of asking him for advice on mm-hmm. people he may know in the sports space in Atlanta. And, you know, would you be kind enough to to spend some time with me in case he could continue to connect me with folks that I could network with and ask advice to? And and I authentically wanted advice. I didn't know really what direction I wanted to go in sports. And so during the conversation with this tennis pro, he was very cool. He said, you know, Molly, in Atlanta, tennis is a big deal. Like he said, people teach tennis at their apartment complexes for a reduced rate on their rent. And I remember standing in my friend's apartment and I, you know, I'd been eating grapes for three days (laughs) straight for free. I slept on her couch and I thought, geez, I need a deal like that. That Sounds pretty good. This would be, uh, yeah. I mean, I need one of those deals. And he goes, you know, a really good buddy of mine is getting married and he's moving out of an apartment complex where he teaches tennis. He said, they're going to need a tennis pro, but they don't know it yet. He said, you want to go over there. So he tells me where this place is. I, I get in my car, I drive over and I walked in and the manager was there and she was very nice. And I said, Hey, I taught, I played. I said, do you have a tennis court here that you use to teach to the residents? And she said, Oh yeah, we do. We have an incredible pro. She sort of starts selling me on moving in. And as I'm listening, I said, well, look, you know, I can't move in right now. I said, but gosh, if anything was to change with your tennis pro, I would absolutely love to talk to you about teaching tennis here. And she said, oh, I mean, like completely, you know, lady, get out of here, right? She said, oh, appreciate you coming by, but we're good. He's been here forever. Everybody loves him. We're all set, but thanks for stopping by. And I I hand her my homemade Kinko's, you know, paper thin, really probably unprofessional business card. But I was pumped because I had a there business it is. card. Yes, <laughs> at, big time. At, at, you know, yeah, right, exactly, at 22. So I hand her my card and I walk out and I'm driving back to my friend's apartment. And I see this local restaurant across the street that's right there. It's probably, I don't know, a couple hundred yards. It's a little pizza place called Piero's Pizza. And I thought, you know, I wonder if they sell a lot of pizza to that apartment complex because it's really close and they should. It's right there. And so I walked in and I asked for Mr. Piero, which of course, Piero's Pizza, that felt obvious. And Mr. or Mrs. Piero, actually. And so out comes Mr. and Mrs. Piero. And I said, 
hey, guys, I'm just curious. I said, you know that apartment complex over there? And they said, yeah. I said, there's like 1,100 units. A lot of young people live over there. And they said, yeah. And I said, do you sell a lot of pizza to that apartment complex? Because it sort of feels like it's close and, you know, you should. And Yeah. And they said, well, I mean, a little bit, but I don't know, not a ton. And I go, well, what if we did something where you gave me like 15 or 20 pizzas for free once a month and I give them to all the people that come to the tennis clinic? If you give me a coupon, I'll take the coupon, stuff it in the newsletter that – the residents get at the very beginning of every month that sort of informs one of things happening in the, in, at, at the property. And they said 15, 20 pizzas for free once a month. And you'll stuff a coupon in every single newsletter that goes to every front door. I said, yeah. And literally they both lit up. They said, Oh my gosh, we love it. They, they said, it's awesome. And I said, well, cool. And I looked at them both and I said, you know, I don't really have a deal over there yet, right. but I'm really close. So when I get it, I'll be back. And they said, well, we, we really like it. So, you know, and I go, no, 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 I got it. So I drive back to my friend's apartment and I call my buddy at Wilson Sporting Goods who gave me gear in college. And I said, Hey, look, I'm trying to get this deal. And I explain it to him. And I said, could you put a box of Wilson stuff together for me? I could give it away to people, give me local coupons. We could send them to the local. And he goes, wow, this is, this is great. Yeah. Be happy to Molly. That'd be no problem. And so the next morning I woke up and went to Kinko's because John, you know, I'm a, probably a little older than you, but this is a place that I'm frequenting uh, at the time. And so I print these tennis tips I'd made for a local magazine in Lansing um, that were probably very poorly written, but they were these little <laughs> tennis tips because I thought, you know, what a great way to reuse these, right. put these in the newsletter too, and get everybody pumped about the program. And so my box of stuff comes in from Wilson. I've got my tennis tips. I'm thinking, man, it's this guy I told this lady at this property that he's leaving yet. Right. So I get in my car. I think, what the heck? I'm going back over there. I'm like, Hey, I'm Molly. I came by and literally I'll never forget the look on the manager's face. I mean, she full on lit up. She goes, you are not going to believe this. And, and of course I'm like, what's, what's going on? You know, what's up? And she goes, man, the, the tennis break came in this morning and, and, and they're moving out. She said, we actually do need a tennis pro. This is really incredible timing. And I said, well, God, I was, you know, I just, this is great. I said, I was dropping off this stuff from Wilson. These tennis tips are amazing. And we could put these in the newsletter and and then I proceeded to sort of ask her how it worked. I said, what was the deal? And she said, well, you know, he taught tennis every Tuesday to anybody that wanted to come. And I said, well, how did it work financially? Like, what, what was that deal? And she said, well, we gave him a little bit off his rent every month. And I said, well, how much? And she said, 500. And I said, well, how much is a rent? 850. So she said, they just wrote us, he just write us a check at the beginning of the month for 350. And I said, oh, okay. I said, man, you know, there's this place right across the street. They, they sell pizza. They're really nice people. And I said, they would be kind enough to give us free pizza once a month. If you'd let me, I'd stuff a coupon in this newsletter here that you give to all the residents. And she said, geez, that's really cool. That like, that's fantastic. And I, she goes, the guy we had, like, he didn't, you know, he didn't do this stuff. And I go, no, you know, this is great. And then I proceeded to sort of ask her, what is your occupancy right now? And I think it was like 87%. And I said, well, your, your boss is on you, right? She wants 98, 99, 100% occupancy, right? She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you know, we could we could get people that are thinking about moving in to come to the clinic and I'm excited. They got pizza. They could get Wilson gear. I said, and she goes, you could give them this newsletter with the tennis tips. And, and I mean, this lady's looking at me like I'm half crazy, right? And she goes, well, uh, this is awesome. And I said, you know, this whole like 850, 500, 350 thing, you know, this whole, and I said, why don't we just wave it? You know, I mean, just wave it. I'll move in. We can keep you know, the momentum going from the program. And she said, well, I got to go call my boss and see if we can do that. And, and I just stood there. I said, well, that's great. No, I have no job. You know, I'll, I'll just wait right here. And so she goes back and five minutes later, she comes out 
And she said, look, I told my boss about all this stuff, this Wilson and this pizza thing and this tennis tip. She said, you're good to go. And in fact, we'd really love you to move in as soon as you can. And so I literally, John, lived in this little apartment complex for free for nine years. Is that right? I mean, it it was sick. I mean, it was a great <laughs> deal. But And I tell that story a lot when I speak because it's really a model that I laid over top of recruiting athletes was sort of how do we identify the gaps in the, in the lives of the people that we want to serve and, and the lives of the people that we want to connect to. And we can identify those gaps for them sometimes even before they've seen them themselves. Then we can start to serve them in a way that's maybe different and better than somebody else. Well, the reality, Molly, if, if it was only about scoring a free place to live for nine years, I probably would not have asked the question. But I, I think your answer to it, if people are really paying attention, we can play that into any role we have professionally, personally, relationally in life. Like th- there are many lessons to pull through. So I- I'd like you to then share, how do you go from being this tennis pro, living for free, serving up Perro's pizza uh, once a week or whatever it might have been, into serving top-notch athletes and announcers and coaches at the top of their game. So kind of walk us through that pathway of leaving behind the tennis pro and moving toward sports management. Well, you know, that gave me a little more bandwidth because I had 2000 bucks that had quickly come, you know, be turned into 1500, right. By the mm-hmm. time you get down there. And, and so that gave me the bandwidth because now I've removed a significant expense in my life. And so I started asking lots of people for advice. I would go to networking events in Atlanta and, and I'd try to have a goal of leaving every single one with, you know, three business cards and then meeting with those three people and having those three people give me three more. So mm-hmm. I woke up pretty fast after a month or two with, you know, lots of relationships in the city and trying to connect with those people consistently and authentically, certainly. And and so I, I finally got an opportunity with a, the Super Bowl host committee, which was in Atlanta, um, where the Super Bowl 28 was coming. And I was my role was to, literally to answer the phone at the Super Bowl. And it was a small office. It was the host committee. But as you get closer to the Super Bowl, the office sort of continues to fill up with volunteers and various folks, transportation, et cetera, that come and play as the as the Super Bowl approaches. And but my role initially was to answer the phone. And there was three or four of us in the office. And I worked for a woman who was really difficult and wouldn't which would leave people on hold for a long time. And so here I am 22 years old or so, and I'm answering the phones and my parents are thinking, what in the world is our daughter doing all the way down in Atlanta? She went to college and she's a receptionist. I mean, not that, I mean, all due respect to receptionists, but you know, what, what, why is she all the way down there answering the phone? She could do that here in, in Lansing. But what happened was that created an opportunity for me to connect with all these incredible leaders in sports mm-hmm. in Atlanta who were involved in the Super Bowl. Mal, was that was and, it part of your plan to have that become part of the fruit that this tree is going to bear? Or was that just a lovely happenstance? Well, like you say, John, it's sort of say yes, right? And and I felt like the gentleman that was leading the host committee, Lehman Bennett, who was a former Falcons coach, was a good man. And I thought, you know, if I go in there and over deliver for him, maybe he'll help me. He's got to know a lot of people in Atlanta. And if I can go in there and, and over deliver for six months, which was the amount of time of sort of this gig, then, then maybe he'll help me. And so I would, I wish I could say I had this very strategic master plan, but I didn't. It was about sort of, as you say, saying yes, leaning in, and then trying to outwork everybody sort of around me in that moment and, and contribute to that team in a way. And, 
And so basically what would happen is they would come in and they would see this sort of circus act that I was having to navigate all day um, with this whole button and, and all these, you know, Paul Tagliabue, the head of the NFL. I mean, put him on hold, you know, the damn <laughs> CMO of Coke, put him on hold. I mean, it was crazy. So, but then they would come up and they would see it. And I was able to, well, she was meeting with other people. I would connect with these folks and I tried to sort of how can I get these folks to respect me enough, to like me enough, to help me or hire me when I'm done with this? And so I built relationships with those folks and, and then um, continued to try to connect with them and then after connect with them. And sort of this same journey of how do I ask for advice and, and, and connect and learn and understand through this experience and conversations, what is it that I really think I want to do mm-hmm. and how can I contribute to sports in a professional way? You know, to me, sports as any business is a business. And so it wasn't about just loving sports or loving athletes or, you know, loving code. It was about, it was about the business side of it. And so through that journey, I finally found myself in the office of a small agency in Atlanta, which had a few NBA coaches and one baseball player. And, and he brought me in to go get endorsement and appearance deals for the athletes that the athlete and the coaches that we had. And at the time it was the Olympics. And so I was running Lenny Wilkins around doing sort of taking him to appearances and endorsements during the Olympics. And after the Olympics finished and, and, and Lenny was sort of done with this role as the, the coach of the dream team, I looked at the leader of our company and I said, gosh, you know, what is our plan to grow the business? How are we getting more athletes and, and coaches to represent? And he said, well, referrals. I mean, we, we have, you know, Chuck Daly referred Mike Fratello and Fratello referred Lenny and he sort of mm-hmm. walked me through and I said, well, we, you know, we've got an incredible baseball, but what if we got more aggressive and went out and recruited more guys and, so I put a plan together of how I thought we could do that. And he was, thank goodness, he said yes. And so then I went down to Georgia Tech and, and we had a, and Georgia Tech had an incredible baseball program. And I would just sort of lean on that fence and tried to understand the game, tried to understand the process for the draft, try to understand that journey from sort of the college space as a top round pick to, to the big leagues. And, and I signed a couple guys that year and, and a couple more the next year. And it just kept going. And Guys would percolate through the minor league systems. I would go see them and take care of them and try to, again, much like that apartment complex story, how do I, how do I sort of over-deliver to the athletes that I have? How do mm-hmm. I connect authentically? How do I serve them in a way that is different from maybe others? And so I would get referrals from, other, from our current players for other guys in the clubhouse that would see firsthand, wow, that guy's getting treated really well, and I'm not. And, and so it grew, and, and then I sort of, Obviously, I needed a team to help. Nobody does any of this by themselves. And so I had a guy that played baseball, was a client of ours who was released, and he came in to help run baseball. And so then I sort of said, well, God, you know, that was fun. <laughs> let's 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 build a golf division. Let's mm-hmm. go get golfers and sort of picked up and applied that model um, over and over again in different spaces. And and it grew to where, gosh, I think we maybe had 300 athletes and coaches at the peak and and served those guys. And and gals certainly, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I um, am super grateful for that journey. It was a, it was an incredible experience. Molly, I've had the opportunity and really the honor of speaking at several professional sports franchise. And as I look around the room, not only are the athletes male, everyone else around the room supporting the athletes for the most part also is male. And into this <laughs> very masculine business comes Molly Fletcher. This wonderful, vibrant, beautiful lady. I'm, I'm just curious, looking back on it, 
was it as difficult to enter into that as it sounds to me on the outside? It, it just seems like an uphill battle in some regards. As I reflect on it, I think growing up in the house that I did with brothers the way that I did and being sort of a tomboy, I think I, I truthfully didn't always notice right. that, God, I'm the only one leaning on this fence with five <laughs> scouts <laughs> flanking me on each side with stopwatches and chewing tobacco in their lip. And so I didn't always notice it. And when I did, I thought, you know, how can I be exactly who I really am? That's I right. mean, like you've said, everybody else is taken. So I'm going to be myself. And I'm going to see if being myself works. And and I'm going to see if I, if I, from my real heart, want to connect with these guys and, and support them in a way that is very unique. I mean, to be a professional athlete and do what they do for such a short period of time, make what many of us make in a lifetime they make in a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was what was intriguing to me. And so I worried and spent a lot of time worrying about being better and good and serving my athletes in a way that was authentic, that was, that was value driven. And, and anytime I did find myself in moments where I was behind a dugout, I'll, I'll never forget in Durham, North Carolina with, with a, a manager yelling at a couple of players that were coming over to, to talk to me. And it was like McCann and Mark DeRosa and a couple other guys that were sort of coming up, Jason Marquis, and they were all over there talking to me. And he looked over at Dero and he yelled at him and he said, what are you doing, man? Quit hitting on that chick and go take batting practice. Mm-hmm. And, and Dero is sort of a, you know, has this great accent and he goes, dude, it's my agent, you know, leave her alone. Dero had my back. And, you know, I, if I was on the range and I was behind Matt Kuchar's bag, another player, and people would wonder who, who's that lady? Like, I didn't know the Nike rep was a woman or I didn't know the Bridgestone mm-hmm. rep was a woman. I mean, why is she, they would say, no, 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 that's actually, that's my agent. And so, they had my back and I think they had my back because we had a great relationship. It was a brother, sister, and I had theirs. And so it it was about, and my advice to women typically is, you know, try to reframe those moments as gifts, as gifts that you're different as an opportunity to serve whomever you serve in your life in a way that's different from maybe the people that you quote unquote compete with and lean into who you really are. Mm. I never tried to be, like a guy I didn't I there you was, never started there was dipping gaps. no I didn't I might you know I might chew some bubble gum but that was <laughs> the extent that I would go that was the extent that I could go it was a gift it was a gift and I think there's so much beauty and uniquely being who you are it sets you apart it attracts the right it repulses the wrong and that's the way to live it forward you attracted a lot of the right you have a big business. You've got some supreme athletes and stars, Tom Izzo, Doc Rivers, John Smoltz, Aaron Andrews. When you look back at some of the talent, what what are some of the characteristics that the world-class athletes, coaches, and announcers had that set them apart from those that maybe were a little bit less world-class? <laughs> well, and, and that was what was so cool about that almost 20-year journey was I was up close and watching the way they behaved and prepared and recovered. You know, I, I think one is they believed in what they were doing and how they were going to do it. And, and they weren't afraid to ask for help along the way, but they believed in it so much that even when it got hard, they leaned into it. And And all of us in life have moments that are hard. But if you believe enough in what you're trying to do, you, you embrace those speed bumps, you lean into those hiccups, and you go. And you have to believe a lot in what it will look like as a big league baseball player because the minor leagues is tough, particularly if you're a late-round pick 
you don't have any money in the bank. You're not making a lot of money. You're on buses. It's tough. So I saw them lean in to the moments that were hard. And because what they found over time as they continue to lean into the tough moments was, gosh, you know what? The more I do it, the easier it gets. Mm -hmm. And even when I lean into the little moments, the bigger moments that hit me along the way, I then can use the strength that I've built up from leaning into the small moments to lean into the bigger ones and then the bigger ones. And, you know, the world saw with my athletes the big moments. They saw the, you know, the putt that they drain on Sunday to win a million bucks in a golf tournament. And, and they would see the, the, the strike, you know, the, the strikeout, on, uh, you know, in game seven of a World Series. And, and they would see those big moments. And for me, I saw the little ones along the way that got them to the moment mm. and, and, the, and really the courage and the strength, the confidence, the resiliency, the grit to sit a guy down in game seven of a World Series. So... I learned I learned that relationships, in my opinion, matter most in business. I think our ability to truly and authentically connect to the people that matter most in our lives is imperative. In, in the agent business, there's more agents than athletes to represent. And it's a staggering sort of challenge, right? And Correct. so you've got to be eager to connect and serve in, in an authentic way in order to capture those relationships, negotiate their contracts, manage their entire career. It's relationship-centric. It's a relationship-centric business, which I believe many businesses truly are. Correct. And and you eventually, though, make a decision to pivot away from this business that you love and these guys and ladies that you're serving so successfully. Talk about that pivot. I, I think for many of us, we are on this track of life and to take the fork is incredibly difficult. Sometimes it's easier just to kind of put your head down and and, um, and go with the flow, whatever the flow is, even if you're not supremely pleased with it. How did you, how'd you begin taking a totally different step in your journey and become the author and become the speaker that you are today? Well, you know, when I was, it was, I was probably like 14, 15 years into the business. I had a team of agents that were serving many of the verticals, NBA coaches, college coaches. And, and I, you know, I had incredible athletes who I love and still love dearly. And, but I'd written a book uh, that had done okay. And, and so Kyle, it was a book for young people on how to find tough jobs. And, and I, I would go speak for free at, at local colleges to try to inspire young people to go after what they really wanted career wise, because we work like 82,000 hours in our life. Right. I mean, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think you got to love it. And I mean, I don't like emptying the dishwasher and that takes 15 minutes now, <laughs> let alone something that's 82,000 hours. And so that book did well. And as so I started speaking and I thought, wow, these stories and this book is helping people. And right. then you would run into people with the book dog-eared and highlighted and, you know, ragged. And they go, you have no idea. Like I read this book and then I did this, this and this, and I am so grateful. Thank you. And so then I started to see a common thread between many of the athletes and coaches that I worked with. And I thought, you know, there's something here that can help business people. I'm going to, I'm going to roll all this stuff up. I've learned over the last 15 years and write this book to help people. Cause this is, these experiences are so unique. And, and so I wrote another book called the business of being the best. Mm-hmm. And that book uh, too did well. And that was a little bit more business focused. So then businesses started coming and saying, Hey, will you come and talk to, to, to folks for us? And so I, I did. And, and then that just took on a life of its own, candidly, John. I mean, and then I really felt like I needed to make a decision because 
my athletes didn't know what my voicemail sounded like. I mean, they didn't go to voicemail and, and I'm not sort of saying that as a badge of honor. It's, it's not really necessarily a good thing, but I would sleep with my phone. I would shower with my phone and they, they could call me anytime day or night and I would be there. And, and, and now I was on airplanes and they would go to voicemail and that didn't feel right to me um, to, to the extent that it would potentially be. And simultaneously, you know, again, you'd finish a keynote. And as I've heard you say, speaking is incredibly rewarding, but what's most rewarding is after. That's right. When you hear the stories and you get the emails and you, and you, and you have the conversations where you feel like, wow, I have taken this person from here to here. And that was what was incredibly rewarding for me and so powerful. And, you know, it was very risky. I had an incredible career and I looked at my husband who's very supportive and I said, honey, this is filling me up more. And I think that I don't want to go to my grave negotiating a billion dollars or $2 billion in contracts. I want to, I want to go to my grave knowing I changed lives in a positive way. And I think I can do that this way with his support. And I jumped and I started speaking and it's just, you know, it's been a journey that I'm grateful for, um, a journey that is very rewarding. But most importantly, I feel like I'm, I'm delivering value to the people that I have an opportunity to to serve. Yeah, and, and Molly, before we hit record on the podcast, I shared with you how outstanding you are main stage. So I'll say it again so folks listening can hear it. Like, she really is just captivating and authentic and practical and powerful. So uh, it certainly was impressive for me to sit back and take notes as you were speaking. And as you were, something that hit me, though, was here's a woman who is on the road, who is dancing the relationship, having two brothers that she loves, parents that she loves, a husband that she loves, and three teenage girls. This is something that all of us deal with, whether we are frontline, first-line responders, we're nurses, we're doctors, we're in sales. In whatever role we have, we got to figure out how do you get the balance, Right. How do you appropriately serve professionally and take care of things relationally at home? And so, Molly Fletcher, how do you how do you uh, how do you dance that that little tune going forward, where you got your girls and you got your passion professionally? <laughs> you know, yeah, and I know you're a big why guy and a big purpose person, and and you know, for me, I I got clear on my purpose, and then I sort of started to say, okay, now let me thread every decision through this. Let me thread everything through it, and that will help me determine what to say yes to and what to say no to. And so tactically, I believe clarity creates the platform by which you know what to say yes to and no to, mm. which then the byproduct becomes your ability to really live your purpose and to, and to ensure that you're living it in a way that you don't get to your 90th birthday party and nobody's there. <laughs> you don't get to your 90th birthday party and look around and go, what just happened? I've made piles and gobs of money. I've done X, I've done Y, I have a big fancy house, I drive a fancy private, but I'm not happy and I'm not fulfilled and I'm not full of joy. And so I think that when we have the clarity that we need, it gives us the opportunity and the discipline too we have to have to say yes and no. And then, then hopefully we wake up and we're living a life consistent with our values. And that to me is incredibly important. And it's hard. I'm not suggesting it easy. it's easy and I certainly don't always get it right. I think I started to tell you about there, there was a time, it was probably five or six years ago. And, you know, I do about 60, 70 keynotes a year. And, you know, I, I, I had a week that was loaded with three or four and the week before was three or four. And it just sort of happened that way. And it was just, it was intense and I was gone. And I would sort of, I went from like Vegas to San Diego and then Dallas. And, and I, 
and I came home and my mom had flown down to Atlanta to, to help my husband and, and to be here with our girls when I was out. And, and I found myself one day in Miami at sort of a borderline. It was a, uh, an event that I, it was a board that I was on and I didn't really absolutely have to be there. Right. I've never missed a keynote that I have obviously committed to do, but it was a, it was a board meeting that was woven in between all these keynotes. And, mm-hmm. And I broke down in tears uh, and I said, man, I, I got to see my girls. And I'd only been gone like at that moment, particularly like three days, two nights, but I was anticipating another two more nights of being gone and four or five total. And I just said, I can't, I, I, I've got to leave this board meeting. And people listening might be like, lady, get over it. But I, I think they, by I, the way, are nodding their head like I am uh, saying, you know, right on. <laughs> and I remember calling home and my mom said, hey, everything's fine girls are fine. And my husband was like, honey, everything's good. I mean, everything's fine. It's all a girl. Everybody's good. But in my heart, I wasn't good. And I needed to see the girls. And so I flew from, I think I was in Miami or somewhere and I flew and I landed. I got my girls out of school. We went and had lunch. We played in the park. We hung out. We spent the day together and they thought it was cool. Like I walked into the lunchroom at school and they're like, mom, you're home. What's up? And I'm like, I just missed you. Let's go play. And I cleared it with their teachers and we hung out for three or four hours and then I had to get on a plane and go to the next thing. But then I came back and I got clear on with my mom. I sat down and I said, okay, I don't want that to happen again. That mm-hmm. didn't feel good uh, at all. What, what can I do? So I created some structure on the way that I manage my calendar with my team and myself and my family so that that didn't happen again. And so I believe we have to have the clarity like I talked about, but then we've got to create systems in our life. And then have the discipline to live by them and to, to ensure that we don't hopefully find ourselves in our own lives and maybe similar, similar moments. How, how do you get clear if you are one of our listeners or the guy asking this question on what success really means? How, how, do, we, how do we unpack what our calling is, what our purpose might be? For me, I'm a big fan of Jim Layers, who started a, an organization called Human Performance Institute, which has since sold to J&J. And I went down and spent two and a half days um, at HPI, at uh, the Corporate Athlete is the mm-hmm. name of the program. And and they took me through a program. And so I'm sharing that, uh, certainly not because I created this process, but because Jim did and HPI delivers it. But for me, it was, how do we identify, how do we show up as our best self? What does that really look like? And once you know how you show up as your best self, then you can sort of discern how much of my best self is showing up at work and at home. And, and then have the courage to, to really get clear on what that looks like and, and how is your job and your career lifting you up at home and vice versa. And then, you know, you go through a lot of exercises and questions where you define what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want people to describe you? You know, who do you want to be? What matters most to you? What are your deepest values? I mean, you sort of ask yourself all these questions. And through that unpacking of that, you then begin to say, okay, so if my, for me personally, I'll share, I went through that process and then I said, you know, my mission in life is to inspire, lead, and connect with courage and optimism. And so every decision I make, every keynote, et cetera, is, is can I do that and can I do it well? And when I find myself in moments where, you know, your flight's been canceled, you're at the Dulles airport, you're trying to get home, you travel a lot, John, I say, how am I going to inspire and connect? with this gate agent and not lose my, you know what I mean? And so that, so that I can, so I weave that through in moments in my life, sometimes where it's tough, 
to do. And that's where I think our purpose statement can also come in handy is in moments when we maybe not show up as our best self, but when we, when we remind ourselves of our why and our purpose in life, then we can, then we can serve the people around us even better. Awesome. And I, I would encourage folks who have never done that exercise to consider what their legacy is. How do you want to be remembered? What are your values? Are you living into them? Is there a gap? And if there is, what are we going to do to make it a little bit better tomorrow than it was yesterday? So uh, in doing so, you will also be able to inspire and lead and connect with great courage and great optimism like Miss Molly Fletcher does daily. Molly, in our conversations, in your podcast, in your writings, in your speaking, this will be my, be my final question before the, uh, the Live Inspired 7. But when you leave the platform, what is one thing that you hope is elevated within the audience, whether that's an audience of 1,200 business leaders or, or three scholar athletes? Everybody shows up in a different place and everybody has stuff going on in their lives personally and professionally. And and I deliver a message that is very much something that they can lift up over top of a sales relationship and apply it. They can lift it over a personal relationship and apply it. They can lift it over a prospect that they're trying to sign or recruit or or a client, a potential piece of business they want, lay it up and apply it. Um, and, and so if I can take people from a place that they were and move them to a place where they can leave that room a better version of the person that came in based on the circumstances in their own life and based on what they're responsible for and what they feel responsible to deliver to the world around them. But that to me is what is inspiring and what matters. So I speak to a lot of sales teams, a lot of leadership teams, often to all women organizations. And so I take them through a five-step process to shift behavior in the absence of crisis, right? Like a lot of people in the room, nothing is tragically wrong per se, but they're there because they want to make a shift. They want to get a little bit better. And so I take them through a five-step process to shift in the absence of crisis. And that, that is uh, what they leave with. That's awesome and powerful and worth uh worth investing in. So, uh, Ms. Molly Fletcher, I'd like to ask you seven questions that tether all of our guests together. The first, and it's one you're very familiar with, is what is the best book you've ever read? You know, I would say The Alchemist. Mm. That was a book that I read and I just couldn't put it down. And, you know, there's not a lot of books like that. And and with the exception of yours, of course, <laughs> John O'Leary. But that book to me was really cool because it's all about purpose and 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 following your purpose. You know, it's one of the very first ones I read when I began the leadership journey, Paulo Kahlo, and uh, blew me away. So what, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child, Molly Fletcher, which you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Something I possessed as a child that I wished I exhibited today. Wow. Oh, man. Belly laugh that we do as a kid and sort of that, uh, I think probably just that unharnessed, mm -hmm. go for it. I feel like sometimes in life, and it's a good thing, but we have to act like professionals. And boy, when you're a kid, you're just a kid and it's just wide open. And that's pretty cool too. Although I think that unharnessed belly laugh and go for it attitude was alive and well with the walk on at Michigan State and in Atlanta <laughs> and beyond. So you may have a little bit more of that little girl than you you uh, even recognize. <laughs> Molly, if your house caught fire and all living things and people are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what would you grab? I would grab, boy, that is such a good question, John. You're throwing me off here. 
You know, pictures. I mean, we have photo albums of our girls. Obviously, so much is online now, but even when our girls were young, photos of our girls, of my parents. We have this really cool sort of ledge in our living room of just family photos of my husband's family and my family. I would probably scoop all of that up and grab it and go. Awesome. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who do you want hanging out right next to you on that bench? My parents, mm. for sure. In northern Michigan, I'm sitting with my parents. That's an easy one. Powerful. What is the best advice that they or anyone else ever gave you? You know, my mom told me when I, uh, one time in college, when I was having a little bit too much fun and my grades were dipping, she said to me, she said, let me tell you something. She said, Molly, you can have it all, but you just can't have it all at once. Mm. And, and that was cool. And I still lean on that quote and advice today um, because I do like to do everything. I'm not the most patient person in the world. And, and she was basically saying, you know, you're in a sorority, you're playing tennis and you're at school and you can have all of it, but you just can't have it all at once. So manage your time, manage your energy appropriately. Awesome. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Keep leaning in, keep leaning in, keep being fearless, uh, go for it. No is just feedback. No, isn't no. It's just another form of feedback. Well, in, in, uh, in hearing that, it has been said, Molly Fletcher, that all great people, sports agents, tennis players, authors, speakers, and women can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? That she led and inspired others with courage and optimism. Molly Fletcher, you have indeed led and inspired others with courage and optimism. I want to thank you for your work and your words and your heart and your profound impact. It's certainly touched my life. Well, John, you have touched mine and so many. So thank you for having me on. I'm certainly humble and grateful. My friends, that is the great Molly Fletcher. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. Okay, guys, I know what you're thinking. John, we get it, man, we get it. Rate and review the podcast. But my friends, listen, it really does help other people find our show, which allows us to grow our Live Inspired community. Don't you wanna help other people feel fired up about their lives just the way that you feel fired up about yours? So please go right now to Apple Podcast or anywhere that you listen to your show and give us a five-star rating, and then go ahead and share what you enjoy most about the Live Inspired podcast together. We can make a difference.